Last week we we delved into the thought of be not deceived. You see it five times in the Bible, that phrase, be not deceived. Um, And I think that that picture is telling because I've known people, I've been that person. My Bible's open in my life, and yet I'm still not seeing it for what it says. Be not deceived. Last week, we began with the idea of we shouldn't be deceived regarding our own tendency. Deuteronomy 11, verse 16 says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. It's no accident that the first commandment in Exodus 20 is, Thou shalt have no other gods before thee, before me, rather. You see, it starts out with a reality. And the reality is we have a tendency to stray from our Savior and to get on that path to idolatry. Now, let me go ahead and define idolatry so we have something to work with here. Idolatry is any time you put anyone or anything at or above the level of Jesus Christ in your life. If there's anybody or anything that's anywhere close to being as as important to us as Jesus is, then that has become an idol. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. It's a reality. And you know what? This verse in Deuteronomy gives us the battleground. It says, take heed to to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. That's the battleground. Your heart, the mind, emotions, and will. We could say it this way. Your thinking, your mind is the battleground. And if we can win the battle in our mind, if we can win the battle in our thinking, everything else starts to fall into place. So what's the deception? Be not deceived. Here's the deception. Oh, that'll never happen to me. We're deceived if we think that. We're deceived if we think that we could never have an idol in our lives that comes before Christ. So uh, last week the message was was titled this. uh, Regarding our, our tendencies, it was entitled The Deceptive Path to Idolatry. The Deceptive Path to idolatry. We saw distraction. The first step is distraction. It says, uh, take heed to yourselves that ye be not deceived that ye turn aside. Distraction. And then detention. Once you've turned aside, once you've been distracted, you find yourself serving, serving other gods. But, but even then, you're like, man, I know I shouldn't be doing this. I know I shouldn't be going down this road. I know this shouldn't have the part in my life that it does. I, I really wish it. But then what happens is it turns into devotion. You start to love it. You go from serving other gods to full-on worshiping them, see? And that's the path to idolatry, and that's what we covered last week. Next week, with the Lord's help, we're going to be challenged to not be deceived regarding our transformation. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. If you've truly been saved, you've been transformed from that. So we dare not let that into our lives. We dare not look like that. We dare not act like that. Don't be deceived regarding our transformation. Then if it's the Lord's will, the next week, August 7th, we'll be challenged to not be deceived regarding God's, I'm sorry, regarding our testimony. July the 31st. Where did that go? Yeah, there it is. Our testimony. 
1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. There's a deception involved in our testimony. But then the one that most people go to when they think of that term, that phrase, be not deceived, we don't want to be deceived regarding God's tolerance. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap, Galatians 6, 7. So we've got, we've got them in the hopper for the next few weeks if the Lord lets us go there. But for this morning, I'd like for you to turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Now, I'm going to tell you now, all through this message, I'm likely to say Mark. Ignore that. Because we're in Mark on Wednesday nights, I've gotten used to saying Mark. I don't mean Mark. I mean Luke. Okay, so if I say Mark, just ignore it. It's Luke. We're in the gospel of Luke. What gospel are we in? And what do, I, what do you do if I say Mark? Perfect. Okay, we got it. Luke chapter 21, verse number 1. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. He saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, of a truth I say unto you, he's speaking to his disciples, of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in under the offerings of God, but she of her penury, her poverty, hath cast in all the living that she had. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come, and the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Now, verse 8 is where we want to focus. And he said, take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draweth near. Go ye not, therefore, after them. Now, let's quickly, just to get some context, let's talk about what's happened so far. And we're going to use, we're going to use all the Gospels to, to chronologically see where we've been. In Luke 20, verses 27 through 40, the Sadducees have challenged Jesus regarding marriage in heaven. You remember when they, you remember when they came to him with a question that was meant to trap him? And they said, okay, if you've got a guy and he marries a wife and he dies and they don't have any children, so she marries his brother and he dies and they don't have any children, so she marries the next brother and he dies. And they go seven times into that. She marries all seven brothers, no children, then she dies. All right, whose who's husband is going to be her Who's going to be her husband in, in, in heaven? I love how Jesus responds in Matthew. Luke doesn't include this response, but I love how he says in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 22 verse 29 Jesus answered and said unto them you do err you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God he says you're wrong the question's not even right you don't know your Bible and because you don't know your Bible you don't you don't have the power of God in your life can I tell you something friend none of us will have the power of God if we don't know our Bibles none of us and if we don't know our Bibles we're going to err we're going to be wrong about everything 
Then in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, Mark chapter 12, and I do mean Mark that time, uh, 28 through 34, Jesus is teaching regarding the great commandment. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Then in Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through 44, Jesus offers a question regarding Messiah in relation to David. We could put it this way. He goes on the offensive. He goes on the offensive. And he said unto them, how say they that Christ is David's son? And he hearkens back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Then in verses 45 through 47, Jesus condemns the false piety of the religious leaders. Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts. These are guys that walk around. They were commanded to have certain hangings off of their garments as a symbol of who they were as Jews, they made sure their hangings were noticeable and flowery and flowing and everybody saw them. This would be akin to preachers that I've known over the years that not only wanted the Lord to know they loved him, they wanted to make sure everybody else knew how much they loved the Lord too and they got a little bit silly with it. I remember one preacher in particular, he took a bunch of teenagers, I was one of them, to the mall. We went to the food court to eat. And before we ate, he stood up on a chair in the food court of the mall. I need everybody to be quiet. We're about to say the blessing to our Lord and say, I thought to myself. Now, it wasn't just a teenager reaction either. That's a bit much. Now, do I believe you ought to pray unashamedly in front of people? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you can cross a line with that kind of stuff. I kind of felt like it did. And these guys made sure that everybody knew how spiritual they were and, frankly, how much better they were than everybody else. And, by the way, we, we need to be careful of that too. Mm-hmm. I'll not spend time on all that. But then we find ourselves in our text, Luke 21, 1 through 8. Jesus is in the last week of his earthly life here. Time is winding down before the cross. And he and his disciples are at the court of women. And at the court of women, you have 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles. And the people would bring their offerings, their tithes, their, their votive offerings. And they would cast them into these big metal trumpet-like things. And so you could hear everything just clanking as it went in. Nobody had paper money back then. And so they would come and they would put their offerings in and it would be, you know, this one over here was for the, you know, the sacrifices and this one over here was for the poor and this one, you know, and they had all, they, they had, you know, kind of like we do with our designations. And so Jesus is watching and the rich and powerful and prideful ones are making sure their offerings clang a lot so that everybody knows how much money they put in there. And, oh, look at, man, they're so, all that they're giving to the Lord. Oh, wow, isn't that what? By the way, God takes a dim view of that kind of stuff. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. In contrast, you've got a widow. She's got two mites. The word is lepta, and it's uh, two copper coins. 
they represent about half a penny or half a day's wage. And it's all she's got left. She leaves them and departs with nothing left. Now, can I take a a sanctified on-purpose rabbit trail for a second? Some of the people I read after take the position that Jesus is not really commending this widow because she's giving to a corrupt system and that what this, this story of the widow and her two minds is meant to do is meant to show that when you give to a corrupt religious system, it ultimately takes everything you have, that it's not really a commendation on her, that it's just a, a, a lesson that we need to learn. That when you, you know, because she's giving to, it's being misused and all that, and Jesus is not overly impressed with her personally, but the lesson, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Can I tell you? There is actually biblical evidence of of God commending people for giving to a corrupt system. Once again, I think the seven churches of Revelation are just that. They're churches, and churches means there's people saved in them. But of the seven, the most corrupt is almost certainly Thyatira. And when you read in Revelation, uh, I think I got it written down here, actually. When you read in Revelation um, 2, verse 19, he's speaking to Thyatira, and he says, I know thy works and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works. He mentions it twice. What's he saying? Yes, Thyatira has become corrupt, and Thyatira is doing all things wrong, but there are people in there that are trying to do right, and I notice that. I notice that. So I don't take that position that he doesn't commend her. I think he does, and we'll talk more about her later. We'll get back to her in a minute. But then... In verse 5, as Jesus and his disciples leave the temple, they're heading to the Mount of Olives, and some of them are commenting on the opulence of Herod's temple, which, by the way, was begun decades before and hadn't even been finished at that point. Herod is dead now. His son has taken over, and uh, it's just opulent. Jesus, did you see the gold toppings around the edge of the... Did you see the... Oh, wow. And, and the, the jewels that are encrusted in there. And Oh, wow, wasn't that beautiful? Jesus is at best unimpressed. And this is what he says in, in, in verse number six. He says, the days... For these things which we behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus makes a prediction that 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 temple that you're so enamored with, in short order, is going to be completely raised. No stone will stand on top of the other. And in AD 70, that's exactly what happened. Roman general Titus came in and raised the whole city. Now, what's interesting is some historians claim that Titus's initial orders were not to take down the temple. He was smart enough to know we're going to have all kinds of problems out of these Jews if we don't leave that temple. But what happened was a fire caught fire. And the fire got so bad that the gold began to melt down between the stones and the soldiers started pulling the stones down to get access to the gold. See, Jesus made a prediction. It didn't matter what Titus ordered. What Jesus said would happen, happened. And now all you have left is the temple on the temple mount is the wailing wall, which is not a part of the temple proper. It's part of the retaining wall that was under the temple. And you'll see there's not one stone upon the other there. When Jesus says something's going to happen, it happens. 
you know. That's why I'm completely confident he's coming back, because he said he would. And what Jesus said will happen, happens. And then in verse 7, he begins what is called his Olivet Discourse. Now, Matthew and Mark record much more of this sermon than Luke does, and there's a reason for that. Luke is addressed to Greeks. And the Greeks would not have had that much of a need at that point for all the Messianic and Jewish tones of that sermon. And so it's important to remember that the only proper interpretation is from a Jewish or a Messianic perspective of what he's about to talk about. We must view that through the lens of Jews and his Messianic kingdom. But that doesn't mean that we can't have application here. Verse number 8, and he said... Take heed that you be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draweth near, go ye not therefore after them. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word from which we get Messiah. What is the Messiah? What is the Christ? He's the one who is king. He's the one who's crowned with authority. He's the one that reigns with authority on the throne of your and my life. So with that said, our application to the 2022 church gets a little bit clearer. Be not deceived. Many will come and seek to lame claim to the throne of your heart. Don't go after them. You see, right now, everyone in here, saved or unsaved, you have a Christ. Someone that you have anointed as Lord of your life. Something that you have anointed as Lord of your life. Now, we understand that positionally, Jesus is Lord whether you make him so or not. But the question is, practically speaking, is he running my life? Is he on the throne of my heart? Or is there some other little C Christ that's out there? that's taken his place. So while he's telling the disciples, and by extension the Jews, watch out because this is going to happen leading up to to Titus' invasion, and this is what's going to happen leading up to my return to set up my millennial kingdom. For us as the church, he's saying, watch out. There's all kinds of people and things and ideas that are vying to be Christ in your life. Be not deceived. And so up to this point, we've said to not be deceived regarding our tendency. But this morning, be not deceived regarding Christ's true identity. And if we're going to title the message this morning, we'll title it this, Enthroning the Only Christ. Enthroning the Only Christ. Father, a lengthy introduction, Lord, but I pray that you'd help me now as I get into the meat of the message. May I be helpful and useful to your people. May Christ be lifted up and may we all leave here with him enthroned right where he should be on the throne of our lives. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, that was the introduction, Andy? Yep. Take heart. Take heart got a question for us. I'm asking you, but I mean it for me as well. What false Christ could currently be challenging for the throne of your heart? I don't care how long you've been saved. 
I don't care how involved you are in ministry. Every one of us have to constantly be vigilant to not be deceived about other little C Christ that want to take the throne of our lives. What could it be for you? What could it be for me? Well, let's, let's take the narrative here and let's, let's pick out three things that it could be. Three things that it could be. First of all, maybe it's attention. Attention. I crave attention. I am ruled by attention. Look at verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. They're making as much noise as possible. They want everybody to know how much they've given. They want everybody to know what they've done. They want everybody to know how spiritual they are because they need that attention. And that's what rules them. We are seeking God's face regarding the Family Life Center, trusting him to give us what we need to build it and to build it soon because we need it soon. We need it now. And he knows that. Thankfully, the estimate is going down. There was at one point that the estimate to build it was upwards of $3 million. We're thinking it's right more in the area of 2.5 now. So much better. Oh, 2.5, that's great, you know. All right. Let's suppose that somebody in here had that money, disposable income on hand, and I'll not use anybody as an example. I don't know of anybody that has it, and if you do, come see me. And God lays on your heart to give. And he lays on your heart to give and nobody know who it was. Could you do it? We've had a couple of occasions in which we've been reached out to by people in the community. Uh, We'd like to be a part of this, but this is what we ask in return. The answer is no. You either give it to God or you don't. Now, I'm not talking about anybody in our church, okay? But word's gotten around that we're trying to build a big building. And people like big buildings. And they like having percentages of big buildings. You know, The answer is no. We don't do quid, quid pro quos with the work of God. We just don't. Okay? And I'm sure they have the best of intentions. We just don't do it. Because when you give something to God, you either give it to him or you don't. But if you're, I, I, had, I had a guy I knew at my last church. And I preached something, did something. I did something. I was preaching or walked funny or something. I don't know. But I made him mad. And he came to me, and he asked me again for what he wanted, and I, ha- I had to tell him no, and he said this, Don't you know that I helped build this church? Don't you know how much money my family's put into this church? And I looked at him, and I said, And don't you know that whatever reward you were going to get for it just evaporated? Because if you're doing it for the attention, well, and by the way, preachers are bad about this. Some preacher comes in here to preach and y'all amen him more than you amen me. That fly all over me. I act like it doesn't. I act all spiritual. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad the Lord used you. We don't care who he uses. We do. 
I'd rather use me, but we don't, you know. <laughs> Preachers are bad about that. Preaching meetings come and go. Well, they still ain't asked me to come preach yet. Why are we in it? What are we trying to do? Because if we're in it for the attention, it's become a little Christ in my life. See? We have it right here on this pulpit. That in all things, he might have the preeminence. See? Could be attention. Oh, how about this? Maybe it's allurements. Are the allurements of life becoming little Christs to you, to me? Verse 5. And as some spake of the temple how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. The disciples were overcome with the stuff. The stuff. Those things that adorned the temple. Those things that made it look purty. The allurements of life. Now, there's two types of allurements. There's allurements that are okay and can turn into something wrong, and there's allurements that are wrong from the start. And we have to battle both. Pastor, you got a minute? Sure. I'm from such and such church, and we just, we've been watching you online. We really like what you're doing. We'd love for you to come be our pastor, and uh, here's our offer. Hmm. That's a lot of zeros and only, and, and only one decimal point after two places. I like that. Oh, I think God's in this. By the way, this has not happened. But I know preachers that do it. Everything's a stepping stone to the next biggest thing and the next biggest thing and the next biggest thing. The allurements of it. Ooh. Now, let me turn it on you. I've, I've hit myself on this. Let me turn it on you. Preacher, I, I know our church loves us, and I know we've grown spiritually, but, but that church has a bouncy house. That church has a whole orchestra. That church over there, they offer this. What happens? Allurements. I'm not saying God doesn't move people. I'm saying you better know why he's moving you. I know God's given me a good wife. I know God's given me a good husband. I know God's given me a good family, but that over there is tempting. Allurements. And it could be anything. It could be anything, y'all, that draws us away from Christ being enthroned in our lives. Jesus said, don't follow him. Stay away. But I'm just so drawn I just, that looks so attractive to me. I'll tell you, beer commercials are real good at this. In beer commercials, everybody's smiling and happy. Have you noticed in beer commercials, nobody has a beer gut? (laughs) 
and they're partying and they're the best of friends and they don't tell you anything about drunk driving. They don't tell you about spending all your money on booze. They don't tell you anything about cirrhosis of the liver. They don't tell you anything about all that. No, it's alluring. And these disciples, instead of looking at the sacrifices and what they were meant to picture, and instead of realizing that they're picturing the guy that's standing right there, they're too busy looking at the baubles, the gold, the silver, the brass, the the gifts that have been offered, and just all the wondrous things of the building. Now, I'm not against remodeling, and I'm not against sprucing things up. We need to, we need to remodel this auditorium. It's, it's been this way for a while now. We need to get some new stuff going on in here and all of that. But here's my question. If the church burnt down tonight, would we still meet next week? Because the church is still the church. It's just a building. But we get so caught in the allurements of life. And they become Christ. Oh, now here's the third one. Jesus, Jesus said in verse 8, he said, Be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Those allurements will come. That attention will come. He says, Go ye not therefore after them. Don't you follow them. It could be attention. It could be allurements. And just like before, it could be something that starts out good and becomes bad or something that's bad from the beginning. It could be affections. And we're not going to read for time's sake, but when you read verses 9 through 19, now, now we're talking about two things going on here. First of all, what happens leading up to Titus's invasion, but more than that, what happens leading up to Jesus' return at the end of the tribulation, okay? That's the proper interpretation, but we're going to make some application. In verses 9 through 15, the first thing you see is people are being lured away by their fear, their, their affection for self, you know, self-preservation is a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? Isn't it? What if you'd been on the Titanic? Women and children, women and children. Let's be honest. Some of us men be like, well, she's sorry. She don't need to be on that boat. World needs me. Self-preservation kicks in. By the way, history tells us that it did some. Some people snuck onto those lifeboats and shouldn't have been on there. They're fearful. And so the affection of self and wanting to preserve oneself is what kicks in. And sometimes we let other, other things take the throne of our heart because it benefits ourself. And we're afraid to do otherwise. We've not faced what other countries have. We've not had people kick in our doors and demand that we renounce Christ or we die or go to prison but it happens. It happens in communist countries. It happens in Muslim countries. And it even happens in quote-unquote Christian countries that have lost their moorings. It happens. It did happen here at the onset of our country. You had to have a license to preach. And if you didn't, you got thrown in jail. Thankfully, we got away from that. Our affections that fear, that self-preservation. But you know what verse 16 talks about? It talks about family. Oops. talks about family. Everybody that saw that got excited because they know that's the last point. <laughs> it talks about family. 
And can I tell you, there are some people that you're not walking with God and Christ isn't enthroned in your life because your family drew you away from him. I knew a guy. They were in a good, solid church. His wife got mad at the preacher. And rather than working with the preacher and working with her to try to get the thing fixed, he just decided to let her lead them to another church. And predictably, they're not going anywhere now. And by the way, it could just as easily have been the wife and the husband. It could have been reversed. It just happened to be that way. And I've known a ton of parents that have stopped going to good churches because their kids wanted to go somewhere else. And they followed them. Or the kids didn't want to go at all. They wanted to play ball. Or they wanted to be involved in this or that. And now none of them are in church. I love my family, but they've drawn me away. Verse 17 talks about friends. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Perhaps your affection for those friends would keep you from having Christ enthroned in your life. It's such an interesting thing. Many times in our Christian experience, we'll be tempted by those we love. Now we get to the so what. All right, Andy, what do I do with this? Jesus, Jesus has told his disciples, and by extension us through application, that, that we're to keep him enthroned. Be not deceived. Many shall come into my name saying, I am Christ. They're going to vie to be the Christ of your life, and you dare not follow them. So how then do I ensure that Jesus is the Christ in my life, that he's the one rightly enthroned on my heart? We're still in chapter 21. Go back to verse number three. Here's how. And he said, of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have cast, have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she of her penury, her poverty, hath cast in all the living that she had. God is not nearly so interested in what we give as he is in how much we keep. And as he's observing this widow... He says she's given of her penury, her poverty. But he says, he says that she hath cast in all the living that she had. Now we see that word living and we think livelihood, her assets, she's left with nothing, and that's true. But the word that he uses is very interesting to me. He uses the word bios, from which we get biology, which means life. What's he saying? She just gave her life. She has nothing. She has nothing to go home to. She has no food to purchase. She has nothing to eat. She can't purchase new clothing or anything to make new clothing. She has nothing to wear. She just gave her life. So how do you keep Christ enthroned in your life? It's just like we sang. Take my life. And let it be wholly consecrated, Lord, to thee. I've known Christians who said, Lord, you can have all my money. 
but you can't have this. Lord, you can have all of my pastimes, but you can't have that. That's not what God wants. All God wants is all. He wants my ministry. You know what else he wants? He wants my marriage. And he wants my kids. And he wants my money. He wants my hopes and my dreams. He wants them all. That's what Paul meant when he said, I die daily. I give it all over every day. He told the Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's everything. Well, Andy, I did that 20 years ago. Then do it again. Because I can't speak for you, but I'm on pretty good ground to say you're like me. Sometimes I have to give everything to him over and over in a day. But maybe it involves coming to an altar like this or a pew where you're sitting or the bedside at your home and afresh and anew saying, Lord, I don't altogether know how to do this. And there's parts of me that doesn't even want to. My flesh is strong. But Lord, the best I know how, such as it is, I give it all to you again. I give you my marriage. I give you my kids. I give you my livelihood. I give you my ministry. That's a tough one, y'all. You know why that's a tough one? Because sometimes what I want for this church isn't what God wants for this church. And I have to come to grips with that. Sometimes the way I want things to happen is not how God wants them to happen. And I have to give it over to him afresh and anew. This is your church. It's not mine. I'm just a lighthouse keeper. Andy, you don't understand. I've been working hard in this direction, and now God's it. Die to it. Because it's his. And he has every right to expect of us whatever he wants. Because anything less means whatever that thing is is what's enthroned on your heart. That that's your Christ. You may have Jesus, but is he your Christ? Is he on the throne of your heart, ruling, unfettered by our desires or our unwillingness? Well, I mean, he could overcome me if he wanted. He could, but that's not what he wants. He wants total submission. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead, and, and I don't want to say make a bet because that's not the right way to put this, but... I'm going to offer you something that I think you're going to find is true when we get to heaven. You'll not find one person that says, I gave Christ everything, and I'm sorry I did. Not one. So that's the question. That's the so what. Have you given him everything? And by doing so, is he rightfully the Christ in your life?